Greetings, everyone. Let the words of our mouth, Lord, and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This morning, the sermon's going to be a group effort with the children of the church playing a large part. Our sermon will be a little foray into two kinds of theology that are perhaps less familiar to us in our Western context. The first one is narrative theology or theology of story. Narrative theology belongs to a larger category called theology of enculturation. That's, that means a theology that is deeply rooted in local culture, society, history, and art. It is a very concrete way of talking about God and about the Christian faith, and it is particularly well adapted to cultures in the global south that may not have a large array of abstract terms like contextualization. So, for example, instead of talking about contextualized Asian theology, an Asian theologian might call his book Water Theology. Narrative theology emerges from the local context and culture, and it is a participatory, popular theology articulated by the people through story, description, cultural preferences, references, and depictions of all sorts, like you will see this morning. And while it may speak profoundly to the local culture, out of which it emerges, it can also speak more globally, even to us in the West, who doesn't enjoy and learn from a good story. Today you will hear two kinds of stories, descriptions and reflections by our children on the scripture passages from today's lectionary, and stories from the lives of Christians in the global South. The other kind of theology that will be at play today is child theology. Child theology is a process by which a community, quote, does theology with a child in its midst. The theological reflection and engagement that comes from this kind of theologizing is meant to further the mission and ministry of the whole church, not just work with children. This phrase is taken from Matthew 18, in which where Jesus says, Jesus called the child whom he put among them, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. Child theology is particularly relevant in the global south where the majority of the population is under the age of 25. That means there are large numbers of children and youth in society and in the church. And they face particular challenges such as poverty or violence or persecution as perhaps they might convert before their parents. Child theology seeks to shape the church ministries to address these challenges. Now, in the liturgical challenge, in the liturgical calendar, we are now in the season of Epiphany, 
Epiphany is the season in which liturgy and teaching focus on the various ways God reveals himself to humankind. As I meditated on the text for today, it struck me that this collection of texts portrays God's universal, universal revelation throughout history. It is what I am calling God's revelation to humanity in five movements. I asked the kids in the church today if they could help me depict these five movements visually. Now, if we rearrange the order of the texts a little bit, we actually have a history of God's plan of salvation for all humanity in chronological order from the creation of the world until now and to all end of time. So we divided up the different movements between the kids and they made drawings or paintings of how they understood God's revelation in each of these movements in history. In two of our scripture passages today, people read from a scroll. In Nehemiah, the priest Ezra reads to the Israelites from the scroll of the law. And in Luke 4, Jesus reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah about his call to ministry. Unlike a book that has individual pages, very individualistic like in the West, right? Um, a scroll is one piece, is a piece of parchment that you unroll and you reveal one part of it at a time. Today's lectionary texts put together tell one story. And so we have assembled the kids' drawings of these five movements of God's revelation into one big scroll. It's a scroll that tells the story of God's love for us from the beginning of the world and forever. It is a magnificent story of God's love. It is a love story in which God desperately tries to show us in as many ways as possible how much he loves us. He wants to draw us to himself, as many people as he can. He whispers to us, come to me and I will give you rest. I will carry all your pain, suffering. I will free you from sin and death. I will heal you because I love you. You belong to me. I am your home. Now, I'm going to let the kids tell you about their work. They may even have a little surprise for you. Come on up. himself through creation. This painting that I made represents how God reveals himself through creation, the creation of nature and formation, and most relevant to Psalm 19, the skies. 
Sometimes just looking at creation is enough to understand God's majesty and splendor, beauty and gracefulness. I love how this passage describes the skies. It's not a message with words. You don't have to speak a language or have able hearing. Everyone can look up at the sky and have a better understanding of God. The artwork here is by Zoe, Lachlan, and Justine. This is what they say about their drawing. In Psalm 19, God reveals himself through the law, which is represented by the scales in this drawing. It says that it is more precious than gold, represented by the gold bar, and sweeter than honey, represented by the honeycomb. The law is right, giving joy to the heart, represented by the shining heart. The praying figure represents obedience to God. This drawing was made by Kira and me. This is what we say about the drawing. In the text Nehemiah, God reveals himself through exile and forgiveness. In this drawing, I show exile through banishment of Adam and Eve and forgiveness through a feast and celebration of the word of the Lord. This painting was made by Samantha and me. This is what Samantha says about it. In the Luke passage, God reveals himself through Jesus, saying that all these words about himself will come true, and they do come true. In this painting, I show Jesus teaching a class about himself and God. And I say, in Luke 4, 14 through 21, God the Son reveals himself by beginning his ministry, the first step in the process of giving light to the world. He announces himself as God's true savior and fulfills Isaiah's predictions. In the painting, Jesus begins his ministry in an area that could be Nazareth or could be any of the many other places in which he uh, ministers. And while at the time he didn't have a lot of followers, he would grow and become God's light in the world. This drawing is by Aggie, and this is what she says about it. I drew the big doors of St. John's and people coming into the church. Our church is one building, but what the church really is, is people. We're all different at St. John's, but we're one in Jesus. Thank you, kids. Can we all recognize them, please, with a round of applause? So in all these revelations, from creation to the law, to exile and repentance, to the coming of Jesus, and finally of the church, the body of Christ in the world, God is trying to get our attention. Each of these movements is an attempt to create a relationship with us. So as a follow-up to the kids' words, I'm going to tell a few stories of Christians in other parts of the world and the ways God revealed himself through or to them to illustrate these various movements. <clears throat> Keep forgetting to take this thing off, sorry. In early 20th century Cameroon, in a colonial prison, 
Evangelist Jacob Modidin lay languishing, <clears throat> suffering from a severe bout of malaria. Colonial authorities had thrown him in prison because he refused to collaborate with them to displace the local Douala people so that they, the Europeans, could build a large city on their land. Late one night, an army of red ants invaded the prison compound. Modidin was running such a high fever that his body was shaking. The guard had offered to let him come out of his cell, but Modi had refused the offer, thinking that if the, gods, the guard's kindness were ever discovered, he would be severely punished or even lose his job. The prisoners all woke up noisily, jumping up and down to try to get rid of the ants. In the morning, there were large clusters of ants here and there, so many that in certain places they blocked the way. Unable to reach Modi to check on him, the desperate guard um, began to think that he must surely be dead. He regretted not having Modi and uh, not letting him out of his cell that night and gave up trying to reach Modi's cell because he didn't want to see the man of God eaten by the ants. Someone else tried to make his way to his cell, running all the while to avoid being stung by the ants. He cried out to Modi to see if he was still alive. Everyone was stunned when they heard him answer, yes. What had he done to escape the ants? It seemed that his temperature had been so high that his body had been simply covered in sweat all night. And even though he was asleep, the ants could not attack him. Modi had also had a dream in which he overcame a certain difficult situation. When he woke up, he understood what God had done. God had protected him from certain death in an incredible way. God had revealed himself to the guards and the prisoners in an act of power over creation. The ants had been kept from harming his servant. In May 2000, in Fiji, an archipelago in the Pacific Ocean, erupted in violence and destruction. The very existence of the country was at stake. Despair was widespread. The leaders of Christian churches began to come together to pray for God to intervene and heal their country. As they persevered in prayer and repentance, God began to heal their land and their relationships. A revival movement started. One particular village suffered from chronic illness and death. Crops would not grow, and the water in, their stream, in the stream was toxic, and people could not drink it. The village leaders invited pastors from a nearby town to come and help them. After a period of prayer, and discernment, the villagers realized that there was in their past a terrible sin which they needed to confess and set right in the present. 130 years before, their cannibal ancestors had killed and eaten a Methodist missionary, ignoring the dire warning of a wise woman who prophesied that this sin would bring a curse upon them. In 2003, the villagers, desperate to be cleansed of this curse and reconciled with God, spared no efforts to try and set this terrible event right with the descendants of the missionary. They invited them to come to the village, paid for their travel, and hosted an event in which they publicly repented and asked the family's forgiveness for what they had done, for what their ancestors had done. 
This event was all over the international news in November of 2003. Google it. The secularized West, especially, was mystified and flabbergasted. This was the mysterious revelation of God's power to redeem a community and restore them to peace, love, and, and flourishing through the repentance from sin. In 165 AD, the Roman Empire suffered a devastating epidemic that lasted for 15 years. During that time, the epidemic killed between a quarter and one third of the population, including the emperor, Marcus Aurelius himself. But strangely, in spite of the epidemic and others that followed in later decades, the Christian church grew in strength and numbers. Why? How? Two things. First, Christians had a higher rate of survival during epidemics because instead of fleeing out of fear and abandoning their afflicted members, family members, friends and neighbors to die, they took them in and cared for them. Second, following Jesus' example, they cared for friend and enemy alike. As a result, non-Christians who were ill often returned to health under their care. And as a result, many joined the church, the community of people who had shown love to them at the risk of their own lives. Here, God revealed himself to the pagan world through the love of his people, obedient to his law and to the example of Jesus, his son. And finally, I'd like to tell you the story of a great figure of the global Anglican Church, Apollo Kivibulaya of Uganda. His life and ministry paint a picture of what it is to be the church. A humble and unassuming man, Apollo Kivibulaya never wore shoes. Even in all the hundreds of miles of travel, that he undertook to evangelize Eastern, Western Uganda and Northeastern Congo. Today, Kibibulaya is a beloved saint in the Anglican Church of Uganda and Congo. He is recognized as the founder of the Anglican Church of Congo. Apollo was born around 1864 in present day Uganda. It was called Uganda at that time, in East Africa. At birth, his name was Waswa, which means male elder of twins. In the Buganda kingdom, being a twin brought special status and power, both to the parents of the twins, their mother especially, and to the twins themselves. Later, when Apollo became a Christian, he renounced these privileges, choosing to draw his power and identity from God alone. For a while, before coming a Christian, he was a soldier and was named Munubi for the Nubian military outfit that he wore. But one day, after coming back from a violent campaign, he decided to enroll in a baptism class with the Anglican missionaries. At his baptism, he took the name Apollo because of his admiration for the New Testament evangelist of the same name and also a prominent Ugandan Protestant. His other name, Kivibulaya came from the red jacket he always wore, 
perhaps given to him by a British soldier. soldier. The word means the thing from Europe. When he finally decided to convert to Christianity, he wrote in his diary, the greed to become a man of God seized me. Apollo married, but his wife died soon afterwards. He decided to remain celibate so that he could better serve God. This is quite exceptional, especially at that time for an African man. When Apollo heard the appeal for missionaries to go to the neighboring kingdom of Toro, west of Buganda, Apollo eagerly volunteered. There he worked as an itinerant church teacher, teaching people to read, because as a Protestant, Protestants translated the scriptures and people needed to read the Bible. He felt joy and pride in being a teacher. I explored the happiness that is in preaching the gospel, which is better than any other happiness, he wrote in his diary. In 1896, Apollo volunteered to go to Mboga on the eastern edge of the Congo Free State. He took with him his Bible and his hoe so he could support himself by gardening. This humble attitude set him apart from the other Ganda missionaries who were not willing to work with their hands to feed themselves. There in Boga, people quickly learned to read and took catechism classes. The first baptisms took place in less than a year, which is extraordinary. But Paul, Apollo soon ran into trouble. In Boga, there were many pygmy children who had been sold as slaves by their parents, impoverished parents. Apollo was very vocal in his criticism of slaveholding, and it made him unpopular with some people. The Omukama, or king, became angry when Apollo and a group of new Christians were able to bring rain where his rainmakers had failed. Together, the Christians had prayed fervently to God for rain, and it came. People were also unhappy at the influence Apollo had on women. He protected them and advocated for them. Many women, as well as young men and slaves, came to his classes to learn to read. One day, Apollo was falsely accused of a woman's accidental death and thrown in jail where he suffered severely. In prison, Apollo's faith deepened, and he developed an intimate relationship with Jesus, who visited him there. A few, later, a few years later, he was visited again by Jesus. And this is what he said. He came to me in the night. I am with you, Jesus Christ said. I therefore knew that I could never abandon God. I would feel ashamed. He saved me four times. I then knew that God helps more than all other people. This is why I am very happy. I walk happily. I walk with songs playing in my heart because Jesus protects me. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, I will never let you down. When in 1915, he heard that the church of Mboga was dying, he was reduced to tears. He gave up his sabbatical year to return to Mboga to restore the church. 
Apollo spent the last 17 years of his life living among the pygmies of the forest. And he said, Christ appeared to me in the form of a man and stood beside me. It was as if I saw a man who was my brother. He said to me, go and preach in the forest because I am with you. Apollo adopted many girls and boys as his own. He was able to be a missionary to the many language groups in the forest thanks to his children as they grew up because they came with him on his trips and translated for him. He taught many young people to preach and teach. Thanks to his love for the people, he was able to renew the church that began to flourish again. By the year of his death, he was responsible for 42 churches, 58 native teachers, and 1,426 baptized Christians among six ethnic groups. And that's just in Congo. In March of 1933, his doctor told him he had a fatal heart condition. Against the doctor's orders, Apollo immediately set off on the arduous trek back to Mboga. Shortly before arriving, shortly after arriving, he died on May 30th, 1933. Even in the preparations for his death, Apollo showed his faithfulness to God and love for God's people. He asked to be buried with his head facing west towards the Ituri forest that had become his home and towards the pygmy people he loved, instead of towards his birthplace in the east in Uganda. He said, I am still going toward the forest to preach the gospel. Even now, my spirit is toward my work. So, why is Apollo's story important for us here in New Haven, a century and a continent away? What lessons for church and mission can we draw for us today from this story? Well, although Apollo was only minimally educated, enough to read in his own local language, he had a global vision for the family of God. Everywhere he went, to foreign people groups, he did everything he could to become one of them. His desire was to stretch kinship from his small place of birth to include peoples of all nations. This included European missionaries at a difficult time in mission history and a difficult place. Although he belonged to the dominant people group of the region, the Ganda, he treated people with humility and love as equals. He did not use his status, his education, his relationship with European missionaries as tools of power and influence. He was a bridge figure between European missionaries and African Christians at a time when millions of Congolese had died as slaves in the rubber plantations in the Belgian Congo. He refused to be co-opted into any group loyalty except to God and his savior, Jesus Christ. He defended the rights and equality of all people in the eyes of God, women, slaves, different tribes, different social statuses. And he was not afraid to speak truth to power. He sometimes suffered for it through persecution and imprisonment. He was the apostle to the pygmies, 
the first to take the, apostle, the, the gospel to the pygmies out in the Ituri forest in DRC. The pygmies were and still are the lowliest and most despised people group in East Africa. Apollo remains a beloved figure among the pygmies today. There is a pygmy hymn that goes, who befriended the Ambambuti, the forest people? Who loved them greatly? It is Apollo Kibibubaya, a great lover. Apollo was a key figure in making Anglican Christianity African, not only in outward practices through the use of drums, local music, liturgy, and religious practices, but also theologically. He wrestled with clashes between African traditional culture and Christianity and defined ways for African Christians to live their Christianity in culturally authentic ways. He demonstrated his African Christian witness in terms that the local people could understand. He was considered a prophet, a rainmaker, and he could also use medicine as well. He advocated for the education of girls and founded many schools for girls. Apollo's whole heart belonged to God. Apollo Kibibulaya is a model of what it is to be God's revelation in the world today as the church. And until Jesus returns as his body, Apollo shows how the church is meant to be a place where there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no European or African, no male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. It is a place to feel at home. And I'd like to close with a prayer. An African spiritual song, but from an African culture on this continent. Let us pray. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me on. Let me stand. I am tired. I am weak. I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. When my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. When the darkness appears and the night draws near, the day is past and gone. At the river I stand. Guide my feet, hold my hand. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. Amen. <laughs>